0: You know, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. I don't know if you've ever run into a situation in your life where in recounting a story or a a circumstance in your life, you found it to come across almost like a fairy tale or a fictional tale. You know, fairy tales are classic fiction and you can't be this close to Orlando without thinking about the figureheads of fairy tales, the Disney princesses, who many of us, you know, grew up taking our kids to see or talking about or watching uh, on a movie screen. You know, uh, a fairy tale, a, a story. You know, these, these princesses have been through a lot if, if you're not familiar with the Disney princesses. Some were under a spell. You got one who fell in love with an animal. You got one who for a season lived with seven undersized men. (laughs) These don't all seem kid-friendly to me, but Disney made it work, you know, they made it work. Sometimes, however, truth is stranger than fiction, more dramatic than fiction. There's something in us, though, that is drawn to fairy tales. It's drawn to fiction. There's something inside of us that loves a story of a girl who's under a spell or a girl who's in a tough situation or a girl who, who, who is um, being uh, you know, suppressed by a, a wicked stepmother or family member and then, and then who's at some point in time catapulted into being a princess or even a queen. And it's phenomenal when, when, you, when you looked at God's word, there, there's one story in particular that, that could read almost like a Disney princess story. It's the story of Esther, except this is not a fictional story, this is real life. Because in real life, in real human history, hundreds of years ago, there was a little girl named Esther who was catapulted into a a place of prominence where she became a queen, a girl who had nothing, a girl who came from nothing, a a girl, it seemed, with just an average, ordinary life in front of her. And then through some incredible circumstances, she's catapulted into the place of becoming the queen of the most powerful empire on the face of the earth. But we pick up the story before this girl named Esther is a queen. We have to go back and pick up the story where she's just an average, ordinary girl, kind of minding her own business, living her own life under the oppression of the Persian Empire. I want to take you back to 550 B.C., I wanna take you back a long time ago during the days of the Persian empire. The Persians were a ruthless people. They had an incredible expansion of, of, of their territory, of their empire. And from the years of 550 BC to 330 BC, they ruled much of the earth fact I brought a map with me today let me show it to you just in case you're a history buff like me just want to remind you of how prominent the Persian empire was you'll see there in 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 yellow the vast Empire that was the Persian Empire. It, it spanned all the way to Greece, into northern Africa, around Saudi Arabia, into modern day Iran and Iraq and Pakistan, all the way over to India. You'll see there in the very middle a, a, a town called Susa. That was where the king had one of his primary fortresses, and where, when we pick up the story of Esther, he is located. These Persian rulers and these Persian people were, again, incredibly ruthless and aggressive. Darius the great was the first king of Persia and his son Xerxes succeeded him. Xerxes reigned from 486 to 465 BC. And he is the one who is in power when we pick up the story of Esther. And he would rule and reign and the others after him would rule and reign all the way, as I said, till 330 BC when Alexander the Great eventually conquered the Persians. Now, Esther was a Jew. She has a cousin. We're gonna learn about named Mordecai, who was also a Jew. And these Jewish men and women like Esther and Mordecai were in exile. They, they had been placed in exile under the Babylonian empire. And here they are still in exile now under the Persian empire. And some Jews were allowed to go back to Jerusalem, but others like Esther and Mordecai are still connected to, at this point in their history, the Persians. So the the Jewish people are in exile. They are under the rule of these pagan leaders and empires. And, And Esther and Mordecai find themselves in a very, very, very difficult culture, a godless culture, an immoral culture, a culture, in fact, that was very hostile to their faith and to their future. In fact, let me summarize how this story opens in, in the first chapter because it's actually an incredible scene. King Xerxes is, is, is prone here to celebrate all of his many accomplishments. And so literally he throws a party for all of his governors, for all of his leaders, all of his rulers throughout the entire Persian empire. He brings them all to Susa and he throws a party, you ready for this, that lasts 180 days. Now that's a party, 180 days. This guy throws a party for all of his rulers, all of his officials, from all of his provinces. The scripture says he displayed his glorious wealth of his kingdom and his magnificent splendor. His greatness was on full display for 180 days. All the alcohol you could drink, it was an open bar for 180 days. They had all kinds of entertainment. I mean, just, it, it, it's, it's a huge celebration of his greatness and of the accomplishments of his empire. And then for one week, the last week of this, he invites anybody in the kingdom to come and participate. The scripture says, drinks were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. The royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty. Bounty. And the drinking was according to a Royal decree, quote, there are no restrictions, end quote. It's a lot like going to an NFL game if you don't know what that's like. (laughs) I mean, for, for 180 days, there's this incredible celebration in the empire among all of his governors and officials for one whole week anybody and everybody can show up to the fortress, to the palace and participate. I mean, this was like an incredible celebration of his power, of his wealth, and of the prominence of the Persian empire. History sometimes can be stranger than fiction. This is a, a crazy scene. Well, toward the end of this party, the king decides that he's got one more possession he's going to show off. Not just all the wine, not just all the gold, not just all the luxuries and, and all the accomplishments. No, the, the king, sitting there with some of his governors and officials, calls for the queen. Her name was Vashti. If any of you are pregnant and having a baby girl coming up anytime soon. Vashti might be a name you'd consider. <laughs> she was, after all, a queen. And Queen Vashti, of course, was beautiful and And uh, King Xerxes, in his fallen, broken nature, calls for her to come out and to parade herself around all of his governors and all of his officials wearing, it seems, nothing but her crown. He wants to show her off without any clothing, only wearing her crown, so that others might observe her and see how beautiful she is from head to toe. Yes, that's how corrupt these people were. And Vashti, to her credit, will not do it. She says no to the king. Vashti says, I will not humiliate myself in this manner. I will not come out and parade myself around in front of the king and his officials. And so the king is furious. He's angry, but that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem now are all of his little cronies. They're sitting around and Vashti will not come out. She defies the king, puts her life on the line in so doing. And and now we've got a little mini revolt on, on our hands because all of the king's officials and his buddies are like, hey man, listen, what are you gonna do about Vashti? King's like, I don't know, what, what are you talking about? What do you think I should do? I mean, she said, no, she's not coming out here. It's embarrassing, but you know, have you seen the golden goblets and everything? What do you mean? They said, well, King, listen, word gets around that Vashti has defied you. Hey, man, all of our wives are gonna start defying us. <laughs> Some of you ladies who are single are like, is this how the male mind works? <laughs> Sadly, throughout much of history, Yes. These were not godly men, to say the least. They're not concerned about Vashti and her humiliation. Listen, they're, they're, they're concerned about themselves. Oh, man, listen, we go home, king, and, and our wives learn about how Vashti has defied your order to come out and, and to walk around and parade herself and humiliate herself, Then they're gonna start rejecting what we want them to do, and we can't have that. And so, king, here's what you need to do. You need to kick her out of your kingdom. You know? Kick her out of the palace. You can do better. And so the scripture says the king and his counselors, they approved this proposal and he sent letters to all the royal provinces letting it be known that Vashti was no longer the queen. And now listen to this, that every man should be master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. And so this is like a crazy situation. Sometimes history is stranger than fiction. And so now Vashti's out, the king has no queen over the empire, life it seems for a short time continues, and that's where we'll pick up the story in chapter 2 of Esther, and let me show you what comes next. Look at verse one with me. Now, sometime later, when King Xerxes' rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decided against her. And the king's personal attendant suggested, well, king, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but we kind of see you're lonely. You don't have a queen right now. So let a search be made for a beautiful young virgin for the king and let the king appoint commissioners in each province of the kingdom so that they might gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susa. And put them under the supervision of Hegai, the king's eunuch, the keeper of the women, and give them the required beauty treatments. And then the young woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. And this suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. This is how it worked in ancient empires kings had harems and some of them out of these harems would choose a queen for them though one that was brought in the harem that they favored and liked the most and 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 these royal advisors come to the king as he's contemplating what happened with Vashti and the fact he doesn't have a queen anymore. I'm like, hey man, listen, no big deal. Just, let's just get word out to all of your governors, all of these provinces throughout the empire. Let's have them search for those beautiful women in the entire empire. We'll, we'll bring them all into the fortress of Susa. We'll put them through an extensive beauty treatment process. And, and then you'll have the opportunity to choose the one that you like the most. And she will be your next queen. Xerxes says, hey, I'm in, no problem. If you're having trouble tracking with me here, let me just kind of relate to this in modern terms. This was the very first season of The Bachelor, okay? I don't know if you're familiar. That helps to connect with what's happening here, all right? This is the very first season of The Bachelor. Xerxes is the guy who's, who's trying to find a bride and um, it's, it's a pretty crazy situation. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that there were 400 women in the competition. And these women were brought in. Of course, they were beautiful. And in a culture that valued such beauty, they were given extended treatments. These would take six months to a year. There was an extensive process that every single one of these women had to go through. And then Eventually, they would be presented one at a time to the king. Esther, as we will see, was incredibly beautiful. And she was, of course, one of the 400 that was selected. This is like the most incredible beauty pageant the world has ever known. It's a crazy kind of situation. I don't know if you've ever been in a beauty pageant. I have not. When I was Growing up, I just have to confess to you, I was in no danger of ever being selected for any beauty competition. (laughs) In fact, I brought a picture with me of of my childhood and you can feel free to laugh. It will not hurt my feelings. (laughs) Okay, you don't have to laugh that hard, okay? I mean, I had a birthday a couple weeks ago. I got this text from a close family member of mine. This person simply said to me, happy birthday, we are so glad that you grew into your teeth. <laughs> Can we see those teeth one more time, please? Can we see, look at that. Listen, you guys, I, I, did, I wasn't eligible for braces when I was growing up, I had to have railroad ties, okay? Some kids went to dentists, I went to train engineers, okay? No danger of being a part of a beauty pageant. That was not how I rolled, as you can see. Okay, that's enough. Thank you very much, people. Goodness gracious. What about you? Listen, Esther was exceedingly beautiful. She lived in a culture that was enamored with beauty and wealth. And so she selected, as one of 400. And then notice here this description of her, okay? We're getting the historical context here. In the fortress of Susa, verse five, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai. Oh, hang on, I think I no, yeah, there we go. Son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. He was taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when the king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took Jeconiah of Judah into exile. And Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin, Hadassah, that's Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was incredibly good looking. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her as his own daughter. She was incredibly beautiful. Look what happens next, verse eight. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge and when many young women were gathered at that fortress of Susa under Haggai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace into the supervision of Haggai, keeper of the women. And the young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her to her servants and her servants to the harem's best quarters. She was exceedingly beautiful. She gained the favor of the lead eunuch there who was the keeper of the women. She got the best room. She got the best servants. She got the best treatment. And she was uniquely positioned to gain the favor of the king. We see that Mordecai, her cousin, is... Is is here, he's engaged and involved. He's there in Susa as well, around the palace grounds. He he's giving her counsel and advice as we will see of how to conduct herself and how to earn the favor of the king. And, and so he, here is Esther in this incredible situation, this incredible culture. She finds herself going through this beautification process to be presented before the king. And then skip down to verse 19. Let me show you how this, this section closes. Incredible opening section here of this, of this narrative. It says, now, when the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, and Esther had not revealed her family background or or her ethnicity as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed Mordecai's orders as she always had while he raised her. Here's what happened. Esther pleased the king. The scripture says in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of Xerxes' reign, he he took in Esther, and he did favor her and love her, and he placed her as queen, and he had a banquet in her honor. and And, and we see here, at the tail end of this, there's another situation now where Mordecai's involved. He's sitting at the king's gate. And we learn that through Mordecai's counsel, Esther has not revealed to the king or to anyone else her heritage, that she is a Jewish woman and that her cousin is a Jewish man. Mordecai's very wise not to reveal this because of the tension that existed between the Jewish people and these other nations. And so Esther goes through all of this, this incredible situation, quite frankly, this godless situation, this horrific situation, but sure enough, she is named queen. Mordecai's there. They have not revealed the God they believe in, the situation they come from, and Esther honors Mordecai in that. So look at verse 21, what happens next. Now, during those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigfin and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Xerxes. And when Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. And when the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. And this event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. Not long into Esther's tenure as queen, through her cousin Mordecai she is able to save the king's life and further gain his favor a favor that we're going to see becomes incredibly important for the entire nation of Israel <laughs> but for now i want you to consider a few things about this incredible situation as we kick off this study of Esther Because what we find here in these early chapters and what we find in this early situation, I believe has significant application to where you you and I live today as believers in our culture. There are parallels. There are some things of course that don't connect directly, thankfully. (laughs) But there are other things I believe that do. Can I offer a few life lessons from from, from Esther to, to give us an idea of where we're headed? First of all, can I encourage you with this today? Vanity cannot be your identity. The Persian culture, as we've seen, was enamored with wealth, beauty, and power. Aren't you so glad that we don't live in a culture like that? I'm trying to keep this story PG, as you can tell. You roll through these first early chapters in Esther, it's horrifying what these women went through It's horrifying how these men conducted themselves. It's horrifying how the powerful abused those who did not have power. It's horrifying how the Persians conducted their empire. Listen, this is is a culture enamored with wealth, beauty, and power. And admittedly, I'm not aware of anyone in our culture with harems and parties that last 180 days, but you know what, we do live in a culture that says your capabilities matter more than your character. We do live in a culture that says what you have matters more than who you are. We do live in a culture that says if you don't have beauty, wealth, power, influence, you aren't really somebody and you ought to go through some type of beauty treatment in order for our society and those who follow you on social media to esteem you and to respect you. Ladies especially, listen to me very, very carefully. If vanity becomes your identity, it will make you its slave and it will never grant to you the freedom that God will give you to delight in who he created you to be. Vanity is a false god that seeks to make you its servant and to keep you in misery under it. And listen to me very, very carefully. One of the unique challenges of our culture is social media. It exacerbates this problem. We look at everybody else's best day and best pick while we look in the mirror at our worst. We, we, we are more and increasingly concerned, it seems, by the image that we're projecting and the beauty that we're projecting because that seems to give us some sort of fulfillment and high that we have to go back to time and time and time and time and time again. Listen, we are in a culture that so values beauty and wealth and power and privilege that that many of us are prone to tie our identity and our significance to these things, only to discover too late sometimes that we've lived our whole lives for a lie and for something that will never bring the fulfillment that it promises. This is a lesson of Esther. Esther. We don't live in the Persian empire, but we live in a world and in a culture that so values the same types of things and abuses the same types of things that that if we're not careful, we will be prone to glean our identity and our significance from them. Well, listen, it's like when I go to the beach now. It's crazy, you guys. Like I used to go to the beach and do weird things like build sandcastles and try to, you know, ride the waves a little bit with a little boogie board or what, like, that's what we used to do at the beach, you know what I'm saying? Now I go to the beach and, and, and I see, I see young women, teenage girls, and they've got their phones out into the water in scantily clad bathing suits and they're taking their own selfies to put on Instagram, And they've got other people taking their pictures in poses that would make anyone blush. And this is like a regular occurrence. Next time I go to the beach, I'm gonna do this, man. I'm doing it. I'm gonna get me some nice swimming trunks. I'm gonna go out in the water and I'm gonna pose. I'm gonna text that puppy to my wife. And be like, you are so lucky. You know. I don't get it. I don't come from that culture. <laughs> I don't come from that world. I didn't have a cell phone growing up. I know I'm old, but but ladies, especially, listen to me very, very carefully. The fate that awaits you is the same fate that awaits me. Wrinkles and gray hair. There will come a day you will go to the beach and just enjoy being at the beach because ain't nobody wants to see you in the water taking those selfies. <laughs> I'm just keeping it real. You got the same fate awaiting you that I have awaiting me, you guys. I'm not anti-social media. I'm not, I'm not here to hammer on Instagram or anything. I'm not, that's not, that's not, I'm not, I'm not a get off my lawn kind of guy. What I'm trying to draw your attention to is the fact That, although the particular circumstances of our culture are different than the Persian Empire of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, the human heart never changes. And in our depravity and in our sinfulness, we always run after the same root things that promise us the same ridiculous promises that they can never deliver. And the power and the beauty and the wealth and the privilege that the Persians valued, our culture values, it just looks a little bit different. And what I'm trying to say to you, ladies especially, listen to me very, very carefully. If vanity is your identity, at some point you will have nothing to be vain about. Because we all have wrinkles and gray hair awaiting us. There are days you get out of bed, you're like, man, I feel bad today. I wonder why I'm feeling bad today. It's when you have a a wife. Hypothetically speaking, it says, that's because you're getting old. (laughs) That's a reason I feel so bad today? Yes. (laughs) And our culture sells us a lie that with enough beauty treatments, you can hold on to your identity and your significance. Can I give you a better word than that? Let me give you a second takeaway here. We have something permanent actually, to bring us fulfillment and identity. It's, it's, it's not a product, it's a person. His name is Jesus because Jesus makes the blemished beautiful. Jesus makes the blemished beautiful. And you were not made to treasure value your, your looks or your influence or your accomplishments, guys. You, you, you were not made to, 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 to delight Supremely in any of these things, you were made by an all powerful, loving, sovereign God who crafted you in His image that you might find your meaning and your purpose and your value in Him. That's how God made you. All these temporal pursuits that you're chasing for fulfillment and identity, these are all foolish. They are all temporal and they will disappoint you and let you down and some of them will make you their servant. The only way you can ever overcome these temptations and these desires for, 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 to find your significance and your identity in temporal earthly fallen things is to go to the source, your maker, your creator, who's given you life and meaning and vitality and tie your identity to him because he will never disappoint you. He will never fail to love you, to cherish you, to esteem you, even on the days you don't look very beautiful. You see, Esther had to give up her life and freedom for the king, but we have a king in Jesus who gave up his life and his freedom for us. Esther was loved in her culture because she was beautiful, but Jesus loves us when we're ugly in order to make us beautiful. This is a better way. This is how we can be free from the influences of the world to see beauty for what it is. Because beauty ultimately is not external, it's internal. The external will change. Eventually it will fade away. But the beauty of the heart, the love we get from an all powerful, gracious God, that will endure forever. Can I give you proof of this? Jesus was not a good looking fellow. Do you know this? Jesus was not, he was not a good looking dude. Maybe his teeth look like mine. I'm just saying, probably not. You know what the scripture says about Jesus? There was nothing about him and his former appearance that drew others to him. He was an average, ordinary looking kind of guy. But I, I think there are many of us today who would testify to the fact that you would not find a more beautiful, incredible person who's ever walked the face of the earth than our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The scripture says he wasn't overly handsome. And some of you are like, wait a minute, and all those paintings I see of Jesus. He had such a nicely trimmed beard. He was, he was such a good looking guy. <laughs> That's an author's rendition. He also wasn't white. <laughs> all these paintings we see in these pictures in our children's study Bible. Listen, listen, you know what the scripture says of Jesus? He wasn't handsome in external appearance. Because self-obsession... An external beauty is not true beauty. Can I tell you what true beauty is? Self-sacrifice. And I submit to you today, listen to me very, very carefully, that Jesus has a beauty product line that is second to none, and it removes the most significant blemishes in your life. The blemish of pride, of selfishness, of insecurity, of folly, May I submit to you today that when Jesus came and he lived a sinless life and he died on a Roman cross in your place and mine for our sin and our rebellion and our rejection of God and his goodness, when Jesus took that penalty upon himself, when he laid down his life in our place and when he rose from the dead, he secured a pathway of eternal life by which you and I can be restored to God, our creator, whose image we bear and we can know forever what it really means to be treasured, valued and beautiful. Beautiful, because the beauty line that Jesus gives us could be easily named. It's in the blood. <laughs> Jesus covers you with His righteousness. He, by His own atoning sacrifice and shedding of His own blood, has covered the penalty for all of your sin, all of your ugliness, all of your pride, all of your selfishness. And Jesus, for all who look to Him for salvation, listen. He makes us royalty. Now that is better than fiction. Jesus takes all of us who look to him in our brokenness. Yes. He takes all of us who look to him in our brokenness and he restores us to that which is beautiful. Since your identity doesn't have to be tied to something superficial or temporal anymore. Your fulfillment and your significance shouldn't be tied to something that's, that, that's related to culture and power and influence. No, no, listen, your identity, your fulfillment is tied to something that is eternal, that is permanent, that is truly loving and accepting because Jesus makes royalty out of every single man and woman that looks to him for salvation. Salvation is all about bringing your ugliness to Jesus and having him cover you in his beauty and his majesty. That's what true beauty is all about. That's what true meaning and purpose is all about. Listen, our culture tells us that vanity is a part of our identity. That's a lie. Listen, how do you overcome that? You have to go to the Lord. You have to go to a God who made you in his image as you are, beautiful, accepted, and to Jesus who has paid the debt that you owe and given to you a righteousness that you could never possess on your own. Jesus makes the blemished beautiful, And and then finally, listen, let me me tell you where we're headed with this. And, And even today, listen, just thinking back on your life and how God's working, I want you to see even early in Esther, how God is the hidden hero of history and God is the hidden hero of your story. God is working in your life to bring you to himself. God is working in your circumstances to draw you closer to him. God is working in and through you to do great and awesome things. And listen, where we're headed in this is God continue to work. Listen, we see this at the last part of chapter two, that wouldn't you know, that just by coincidence Mordecai learns of this plot to assassinate the king. And he tells Esther and Esther tells the king and she, she's gaining favor now with the king because she spares his life. And it looks like just a coincidence that Mordecai was in the right place at the right time. May I submit to you as we're walking through this story together, we're gonna see time and time and time again that our God is not a God of coincidence. He is a God of providence. And there are no accidents in the lives of those whom God loves. There is only providence. And God's working time and time and time again to ultimately, we're gonna see, bring about redemption for his people. And the way God's working all the way back in the days of Esther, he's still working today, not through coincidence, through providence. And as we anchor our lives, not to foolish temporal things like beauty and vanity and wealth and privilege and influence, as we tether ourselves to the shed blood of Jesus, his acceptance, his work, his righteousness, his purposes for us. Listen, God's gonna continue to work and to move in such a way that he's always navigating our lives and his purposes behind the scenes, working in and through us to do great things. You will notice as we make our way through this book together that God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. It's the only book in the entire Bible where God's name never appears, not even one time. But don't make the mistake of thinking he's not working. Oh, he's working. And he's working in such a way to display that he is the hidden hero of history and he is the hidden hero of your story and mine. And what seem like just random little circumstances amount in the end to an incredible plan of redemption. It's like a door hinge. (laughs) You know, big doors swing on small hinges, don't they? Swing on small hinges. We have some big doors around here. They're heavy. They swing on small hinges. And and the story of your life, listen to me very, very carefully, and the story of my life is not, it's not one major thing after the next, after the next, after the next. No, you know what it is? Monday through Friday, Saturday and Sunday, it's, it's walking with God faithfully, trusting Him, delighting ourselves in Him, tethering our hearts to Him in the little things in the mundane, in, the, in what seems to be random circumstances and conversations and, and, and events. And, and what we find is that over time, God, God prepares us for some pretty significant things. He works in pretty major ways. It doesn't happen every day. You no, know, every day like a hinge is, is preparing us developing us for what is to come down the road, because big doors swing on small hinges. And what seemed like just a small little hinge of overhearing a conversation, of saying something to Esther, of Esther sparing the life of the king and and gaining his favor, well, it seems like just a a random circumstance and a little event there that, yeah, sure, spared his life, that's big, but it, at this point, doesn't seem like it really pays off for Esther, but what we're going to see is that God's going to hang a really big door on that hinge. And so it is with you. And so it is with me. God is the hidden hero of your story and mine. And he's working to make you and me who are blemished beautiful. He's working to bring us into right relationship with himself. He's working to help us to discover true meaning, true purpose, true fulfillment, which is never found in our culture. It's only found in our Christ.